So welcome to the latest episode of the Linklater's Ideas Foundry, where we talk about and try to unpick the art of working together in the 21st century organisation. From creativity to collaboration, from leading others to looking after ourselves, we explore the skills and tricks required to thrive in an ever more complex and changeable work environment. So, as this is the summer, we thought we'd produce an Ideas Foundry summer special, in which I'm joined not by one guest, but two, Susanna Trezillian and Caitlin Shannon. Now, Susanna and Caitlin are from the Leadership Collective, whose ethos is to help organisations unlock the energy that's required to enable cultural change. And the experiences and backgrounds they bring to inform this is staggering. Acting, radio production for the BBC, screenwriting, stage direction. So if you're interested in creativity, transformative leadership, and how skills normally associated with the stage and screen can make a difference to every organisation, then sit back and have a listen. So Caitlin and Susanna, welcome to the Ideas Foundry. Thank you, it's lovely <laughs> to be here. Well, it's great to, it's great to see you in person rather than just on Zoom. Um, so now we've got to explore these backgrounds and I'm gonna start with you, Susanna. So, so your journey to teaching and training a variety of organisations is a slightly unusual one. So, so do tell us more. Yes, well, I don't know if staggering is the word, Ian, but, um, or maybe it is the word, but in a slightly different, with a slightly different sense. Um, so my, my journey went through, I've worked as a theatre director and a radio producer. Um, and during that, I mean, it was partly because I adored both of those careers and I... To be honest, I presumed that one of them would overtake the other naturally at one point, um, but they didn't. And they always sat very, very comfortably next to each other. Um, the theatre directing was predominantly working a lot around Europe um, in different languages. And um, I, I love working in different cultures and different with different kinds of people and telling different kinds of stories and you know um, all of that and I, I happen to just enjoy languages um, and so I would be dancing around Europe directing um, all sorts of different plays um, all sorts of different stories that people wanted to tell and then at the same time I was producing the likes of Woman's Hour on Radio 4 and um, the Arts Hour on World Service and latterly the Guardian's book podcast. Um, and through that I found, um, you know, a very different way of telling stories and of taking other people's stories, helping them to work out how to communicate their own stories um, on, on radio. Um, and during that period, I, um, or during the later part of that period, I got particularly interested in the role that women have in telling their own stories. I think it was a natural progression from producing Woman's Hour. You know, you filter things quite naturally through, um, through looking at how, at how women communicate and what they're communicating. Um, so through that, I, uh, or because of that, I started a 
well, I, I started an organization um, called Ariadne, which um, worked with or works with uh, women who make theater in conflict zones around the world. There was something about people being incredibly creative in extraordinarily challenging places, times, um, you know, often where conflict's been going on for a long time, it ends up being quite a sort of historically patriarchal world or environment that, that um, these extraordinary women were pushing through and making art. And, um, and I wanted to know more about that and about them and about the work that they were doing. And I thought more people needed to know about them as well. So Ariadne um, came out of that and the, the name meaning, you know, Ariadne is the woman who gave Theseus the, the thread so that he could find, you know, he, he could get himself into that war um, or into that maze with the Minotaur, but he would never have been able to get himself out of it without her um, foresight, really. Um, so, so, you know, the, the thread that sort of leads us out of the maze. And so all of this is going on in my life, which you would think is enough. And, you know, certainly um, my friends and family thought it was more than enough. <laughs> um, however, there, what I then began to get very, very interested in was how this was, what I was learning about how people work and how people function in uh, in rehearsal rooms, what difference leadership and different kinds of leaders, um, how that can influence. I found it influencing my own work, um, particularly as a, as a theatre director. Um, and that's what led me into, sort of opened up the fourth strand of my world, which was coaching and, and training. Um, and becoming very, very interested in how to use a, a kind of use creativity or use the arts, use um, use these these skills that I'd been learning, and help other people to find their own way of being a leader or um, rethink ways of. Um, you know, working in organisations, and um, and it opened up this whole new, whole new, absolutely fascinating world that you know that I've also been inhabiting. <laughs> so yes, that's my um, that's been my progression. And I think what's lo what's lovely there, Susanna, is is you've described the golden thread that connects all these disparate parts of your of your career and how they've been brought to, they've been brought together. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, that's lovely. And, yeah. and, and Caitlin, um, I think it's fair to say that yours has been a similarly unconventional pathway. <laughs> yes, I think, again, I think sort of disparate elements is the word yet again. But um, I started my career after university. Um, I lived in Los Angeles for many years, um, working both as an actor, um, a screenwriter and a script doctor, um, and also moved into playwriting, writing, um, 
and directing short films. And that seemed to um, lead actually very naturally into the world of coaching and training um, and, um, and, and leadership training in particular. I think for me, my, the driving force has been, I really enjoy bringing out the storyteller in everyone, bringing out the creator in everyone. I'm a firm believer that words like storytelling and creativity don't exist in this sort of exclusive realm of artists, that actually they're human qualities, they belong to everyone, and they are incredibly useful qualities for leaders, but actually for anyone in any organisation. And I've discovered this sort of working across public, private, third sector, um, and also back in rehearsal rooms, that it just it applies to everybody. And that's really exciting, actually. <laughs> um, well, we're going to come back to stories in a moment. I think it's interesting that you both picked up on this idea of stories and the stories that we use ourselves, we use within our organisations. Um, but I'm keen to explore, you know, given your background in the arts, what surprised you most about working with and advising organisations in completely different, different fields? What intrigued you about that? And maybe, Susanna, if I start with you. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the most I think one of the most interesting things that I discovered when I first began um, coaching, because of course it had you know I'd been working very much in different fields before that, um, was how fundamentally similar the. Um, what, what people needed and wanted was. Um, and in the arts, there is more space for, um, for, for talking about things like creativity and um, having at the forefront like values and purpose, you know, why are we all here to tell this story to these people? Um, you know, that sort of thing is very, um, is very sort of first tier in in that world, um, but but ultimately what what I was finding in these organisations is that is that it was extremely similar. Um, it's just that they didn't know that these things were called creativity or story, you know, um, and and so that being being able to open those doors um, and kind of re reveal that actually it's all it's all very it's all very very similar <laughs> and can be or can you know at least can be useful can be similar tools if that unlocks things for you um that surprised me um you know as a as as, as somebody that you know quite often you walk past these enormous offices and the, you know, the doors are closed and the windows are slightly covered and you think, what on earth is going on in there? You know, and I have and another beautiful thing is discovering that quite often the people inside those offices are thinking the same thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that for me, that's been a that was a, an early revelation. 
but but Caitlin, does that does that resonate with with you in terms of your background and experiences? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, you know, people are just people. Absolutely. You know, I think their drivers are incredibly similar. If you're asking someone to come up with a new and innovative idea, whether you're in a rehearsal room or you're in an executive boardroom, I think the same principles apply is that people need to feel safe to come up with new ideas. People need to feel safe to come up with the wrong, the bad ideas, as well as the good ideas, um, and to feel like they are being heard and understood. And, um, and that is the sort of environment that nurtures um, innovation and creativity across, across the board. Um, so absolutely, I think, you know, that, that was to some degree surprising, um, but also actually not that surprising. <laughs> and uh, just to sort of continue that, do, do you think, you know, one of the things that has, has come up is how um, in certain organisations, we're very quick to bring in the uh, the yes, but um, you try and foster a creative approach, and very quickly people want to to, to close it down um, rather than giving time and space for those ideas to to develop. And is that a cliche? I mean, I think you know, obviously, it is a it is a cliche, but it's a cliche for a, a good reason. Um, I, I do think, you know, when you are taking someone's idea off the table and replacing it with your own, you're stifling creativity. You know, you end up with a sort of, you know, you're, you're going to end up with fewer good ideas. Um, so it stands to reason that, you know, a yes and culture, cliche or not, um, where you allow all the ideas to live side by side, um, even for a moment and to thrive and to sort of interrogate them and to ask questions about them and to say, okay, is this serving our big idea or isn't it? Um, it's just ultimately going to lead to, to more ideas, to more fruitful ideas and to more collaboration. And I think all those things are just incredibly useful. And that's the key to improvisation you know whenever you see anything um improvised on television you know whose line is it anyway or you know um or improvised in theater the the one and only golden rule of improvisation is yes and you know as soon as somebody yes buts um a suggestion oh um oh look uh Mrs. Boggins has just walked in with a with a gun and somebody else says that's not a gun you've got it wrong the whole improvisation drops um, but taking whatever idea even if Mrs. Boggins has walked in with a gun to a you know circus performance you know sort of a completely this is getting very dark I, I know I didn't, I didn't mean I to take say, it yeah, there yeah, yeah. yeah. Mrs. Boggins character yeah. Sort of yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean is um, you know even even if it's completely out of context and it um, it seems to absolutely derail the direction that this previously very successful improvisation has been going so long as everybody jumps on board and says yes but you know what Mrs. Boggins, that's not a gun, it's a banana. And then you, you know, and you 
you continue on and um, then improvisation can thrive and the troupe enjoys it and the audience enjoys it. And there's something really interesting about about that as well, about the um, about the fact that when when something thrives, however that happens, but when something is when it blossoms and thrives, in this instance, an idea, a collaborative idea, everybody benefits from it. And it doesn't have to last, it doesn't have to be the idea that everybody ends with, but it it does need to just be in the spirit of thank you for bringing that in. So let's con- let's continue this this theme around creativity. Um, and sort of wanted to look at how, from your experiences in the arts, how can organisations become more creative? And, and is it just a case of waiting for the, sitting in your garret and waiting for that elusive muse to strike? I think you could wait forever, <laughs> couldn't you? <laughs> that muse is very, very elusive. Yeah. Where is yeah, that elusive yeah, muse? Yeah. Hanging out with Mrs Boggins. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Where did Boggins go? Um, yeah, I, I think absolutely, it's definitely not a case of waiting. Um, for me, creativity is an active rather than a passive process. And, you know, if I'm writing a play, it starts with questions. It always starts with, OK, what's my big idea? You know, how do I want to illustrate it? How can I express that through action? What's the story? You know, I'm I'm really thinking, I'm you know, about interrogating something and then thinking about answers that are gonna serve the big idea. And I think actually the same is true in business. You have to ask questions, you've got to ask new questions to get new answers. And creativity starts with sort of also sort of breaking habits and thinking about things in new ways. I, I would absolutely say active. Would, would you agree, Susanna? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, ultimately every every creative is working. You know, they're not, um, they're not just sort of sitting around hoping that ideas are gonna arrive at some point. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the driving components I think for a working creative is to know what helps and and for a lot of people um, you know the, the tricks are very different but for a lot of people it involves having space um, you know I'm, I'm sure it's familiar to you know to a lot of people that idea of um, having an idea while you're making a cup of tea or in the shower or you know that suddenly that that uh kind of light light bulb moment happens but you know one of our like most um what well, enjoyable and and successful coaching trick tricks <laughs> um you know coaching um projects is um is a, a walking coaching one because it's all well and good and it's lovely and you know goodness knows that in this pandemic we have all learned how to embrace zoom and teams and all of that and and to have you know conversations through screens but 
having having a thought and taking a walk with somebody for an hour, an hour and a half, where your only focus is to think about it, explore it. Um, the ideas that come simply from seeing different things, breathing in oxygen and moving your body a bit are revelatory and, you know, it's so energizing. And I think there's that, there's a connection there to, um, to David Pearl, when we had David Pearl on uh, yes. the podcast and talking about, and talking about, um, talking about street wisdom. But just to sort of wrap up the, the, the discussion about creativity and maybe sort of merging over into feedback and how we receive feedback, because I was struck by something you said earlier, Caitlin, about your experience and a script doctor. And I hope that was a script doctor, not a script pathologist, because, yeah, the and that implies that there is some refinement of ideas going on. You know, it's not just everybody comes up with these fantastic ideas and everything gets implemented. There is a process there into refining them, into refining them down. And I was just interested in a bit more about that, but also how, you know, in terms of feedback, because some ideas, yeah, they're going to stick. Some ideas may not. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's often said in organisations. You know, one thing that people struggle with is is giving that constructive constructive feedback. Mm -hmm. And often it's something that we avoid because we don't want to damage relationships, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So how do you manage that in I guess what can be you know quite pressurised environments where you've got all these ideas flying around? You're going to have to refine them. And how do you how do you give that feedback? Uh, is it just that in the arts world, people are perhaps more resilient than others? Uh, how does that work? I mean, it's a really good question. And I do think that there is a sort of perhaps a natural resilience um, that goes alongside um, work in the arts um, or Maybe it's not natural. Maybe it's very much practiced and learned mm -hmm. um, just by virtue of the fact that you are having to come up with a lot of new ideas and sort of see um, what serves, what doesn't quickly. Um, and and actually, therefore, you're going to have to have a lot of honest conversations quickly if you're working under pressure. Um, I personally, I'm definitely somebody who's motivated with carrot rather than stick, for example. Um, and I've also had to learn um, that you have to kind of, you know, kill your darlings, you have to let go of things and you have to sort of have honest collaborative conversations about what's working and what isn't. Um, I've been reading a really wonderful book called um, Thanks for Being Late um, by uh, Thomas Friedman. Um, and he talks about the sort of speed of change and the, pay and the pace in the world at the moment in, in business and arts and everywhere and how we have to learn to fail faster. Um, because because of the speed of change and because sort of humans are catching up with technology, we have to learn how to have that new idea, take it off the table, have another one, take it off the table. The process is we have to become less risk averse in a lot of ways. Um, um, and I think that that's what people in the arts sort of naturally do um, because they're working in environments where you know, a lot of new ideas get killed quite quickly. If you're working as a script doctor, you know 
that, you know, draft one is going to get canned. <laughs> um, maybe half of draft two, you know, it's just naturally there's a sort of iterative process where things get sort of shelved and other things get nurtured. Um, and I and and so I, I that's what I sort of tell people, um, you know, in, in the arts and in, in business or across different sorts of organisations that actually, you know, it's a it's a great thing to be able to sort of be robust about your ideas and, and kill them off. Now, now I've got to I've, I can't resist asking you both this, but you mentioned about killing your darlings. Are there have there. Have you got an example of a darling that you've killed and later regretted it and said, if only I could have done that idea. I don't know why everybody was critical of it. If we'd done it, it'd have been a great success. Do you have any darlings you'd want to resurrect? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I Well, definitely. Um, I've got... <laughs> why are you offering, Ian? I've got, a, <laughs> I've got a drawer full of screenplays that I can, like... Give you <laughs> um, that I think actually yeah those would have been you know but I think those would be brilliant. Um, why doesn't the world agree with me? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean I think any any creative person or artist is going to tell you um, you know I think when I when I first started off um, I wrote several screenplays that didn't, weren't produced, but they are the things that taught me to write and they also got me a job script doctoring in the first place um, and they enabled me to sort of help other writers as well. And so I think sometimes, you know, if you don't see your ideas come to fruition in the way that you expect, that they might be fruitful in a different way. Um, and, and and that's certainly been my experience and, and hopefully that gives a sort of that, that also builds resilience as well, that sort of sense of rupture and repair. I don't know. Yeah, I think um I think that there's an there's a sort of inbuilt vulnerability um when you which is which is spoken about in the arts world but is prevalent everywhere. Um and so when you are creating something, um, there is the, you know, there, there is the, the kind of rehearsal period or the, maybe the project management period where ideas come and go um, and you can, you know, kill some darlings along the way. Um, but then there's the moment where you where you present what you've done, and then that's a whole other level of receiving <laughs> receiving feedback, um, potentially, and you know something that you've put out in in sort of with with all guns blazing and feeling so excited about it doesn't hit the mark that you think or is you know is interpreted wrong or differently or whatever. Um, so in that sense. There, you know, the vulnerability is the same. There's no difference in creating a play that gets performed to, um, you know, creating a project that gets presented in front of clients. You know, ultimately, you're creating something as a, hopefully as a team and hoping that it hits the mark. Um, but what I do think is 
really, really useful is acknowledging the importance of tone. I think there's a lot to be said for the impact that people have on setting tone. Um, and I, I, it's something I do incredibly consciously in rehearsal rooms, um, you know, and I know from experience that people describe my rehearsal room in a particular way. And don't get me wrong, there are people, my rehearsal rooms are like the one thing I get very, very serious and red line about is respect, you know, and that goes with if your idea is absolutely terrible, it, it is also a good, you know, like you, that is an idea and I respect that you've done it. And if somebody starts bad mouthing or laughing or, you know, like that has no place in the room um, because it stifles the creativity. There are other authoritative directors who, um, who are far more prescriptive. They're not interested in what other people think. And other actors thrive and creatives can thrive working with those people. Fine, like horses for courses, there's space for everybody. But knowing and being conscious that you when you're given the responsibility of other people, you need to you need to learn about leadership. You need to learn about how to be flexible, how some people under you will want authoritative and other people will want collaborative, how you can relate to all of that, because underneath all of that is extreme vulnerability. Um, well, not extreme, but, you know, we are all vulnerable. There's a reason why, I, you know, if there's, you can get 20 good reviews and one bad one, and it's the one bad one that will stick with you for years. There's a reason for that. And again, it's, there's a, you know, there's a brain and sort of neurological reason for it. Um, you know, when we feel threatened em emotionally or psychologically, our, our kind of ancient bodies, ancient and in, you know, evolutionary sense, still respond as if we're being physically threatened, as if our very lives are at risk. Um, we underestimate that in, you know, in, in the world in general, I think. I wanted to talk a little bit about performance because we often talk about, you know, flexing or changing our style to suit the context. And we encourage to put on our meeting face, uh, our important presentation face, our client face. Uh, and this brings questions about authenticity. You know, do we, are we just encouraging people to be corporate actors, somebody they're not? So um, I'm just interested in your perspective from acting and from uh, directing plays. I, I think, you know, quite, that's a question I get asked quite often actually as well, is that, um, you know, people are worried, I don't want to be fake. Mm. I just want to be myself. Like, you know, I want to stay true to me. You know, what are you asking me to do? Um, but actually, I just consider it choices about behaviour that's already in your toolkit. It's already in your arsenal. It's already part of you. You're just taking a moment to consciously choose something. Um, so if, if, for example, I suppose I'm interviewing a candidate and I want them to talk more, 
I might make a choice about my behavior to smile and nod a bit more, to encourage them to speak. I don't necessarily feel like that's inauthentic on my part because it's reflecting an authentic intention. So for me, it's about, is my external behavior reflecting my authentic intention? If it's incongruent, maybe I want to think about doing something differently. And, and really, for me, that's, that's all actors are doing, is that they're making choices that might affect someone else, sort of, you know, in film or on stage, um, in the way that they intend. And so, to, to be honest, I feel like that's all we're borrowing, really, from that skill set, is, all right, what are your choices? How do you want to impact the other person? Um, is your authentic intention being reflected in your external behaviour? If not, what else can you try? And I like that. So it's, you know, if the intention is to get this candidate to, to speak more, then I must behave in a way that is going to get that get that result. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yes, yeah, so what I'd pick up on just from the end, because she's described it perfectly, is, um, is that actors get the chance to try it out. Um, and that's something that is you know, not seen very much in, um, you know, in, in the corporate world. And um, although there is a lot more rehearsing of presentations and um, trying things out, and we welcome that because not in a million years would we give an actor, you know, the, the role of fourth sword carrier from the left um, and... And you know, or Hamlet, it doesn't it doesn't matter. But we wouldn't give them that role and then expect them to stand in front of an audience and know what to do. Uh, you know, it, it's baffling. And it that was something when when I first, you know, started coaching, this feeling that people were sort of expecting or expected to know what to do without ever having tried it before um you know to to give a presentation and to do it brilliantly and and with no experience no no trying it out no feeling what that feels like um so that's an element that is really really useful in um and and again like setting up these safe spaces you know again um the kind of coaching and training that we do include sort of having that space where people can just see what it feels like to you know if you've never interviewed a candidate before there it might be really good for you to try a few different a few different ways you know because your first instinctive way just possibly might not be the right or the most effective for you um but you don't want to try that out in front of the candidate, you know. So giving, having that space, giving people that time, just as we do with the, you know, with actors, is, you know, is fairly, fairly revolutionary, I think. A question I really love to borrow from the rehearsal room that I think works really well in big pictures and presentations is how do you want, the audience or this person to feel mm. about what you're saying 
And the same thing applies when you're when you're rehearsing a play and actors are thinking, well, how do I want to impact this character? What am I trying to get them to feel at this moment? But actually, how do I want them to feel about this particular place in the pitch? Do I want them to be excited or reassured or warned? What is it? And therefore, does my language and behaviour reflect that? And I think once you have a practice at that, then you're getting into a really exciting place. And it's not just all just sort of monotone or I've I've winged it, I've won it. And, it, <laughs> and actually, it was a bit blah. And that's the, uh, the importance of having people who can assist you with that. So, you know, can you draft in someone who can watch you and can give you feedback, who can be your director? For that particular performance yeah i mean that's the thing isn't it like work with your colleagues collaborate ask for feedback it can only be a good thing mm. i think you know i think with this thing about feedback is feedback's your friend you know feedback is always going to be useful information and if people can get into the habit of asking for it and exchanging it more regularly so that it's not a surprise um, I think that's quite a useful working culture. Um, it's a bit more like frequently gardening, you know, rather than sort of waiting for the sort of once a year bit of how did my presentation go? <laughs> mm. <laughs> the, the once a year weeding. It just becomes common practice. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now I'm going to do a very, oh, we've, we've spoken about so many different things. So I'm going to do a very cruel thing now is I'm going to, ask you to distill your experiences um, in your respective fields to three tips or pieces of guidance that you would share with those of us working in completely different environments. So what would those three things be, Anna? Caitlin, we will continue with you. So what would your three tips be? Distillation, right, okay. Um, I think for me, I think it's really important to to fail, actually, um, and to and as I was saying earlier, to fail, you know, to fail faster. So that for me is that's that iterative process of creativity. Don't be afraid to fail; it's useful. The second thing is the power of story and storytelling, ask yourself, would the information that I am communicating right now be better served as a story? Because stories stick. Stories contextualize information in a way that's different from just passing on data. And they reach someone on an emotional level. Um, that makes it much more memorable. So ask yourself, could this information be better served told as a story? And the third thing, I think going back to this idea of creativity and innovation really being about asking questions and then giving yourself the space to answer them, whether you're going for that walk or, or thinking about what the answer could be. Um, there is no one right way to do anything, but I would just say, continue to ask yourself, you know, what's the big idea? What am I doing? Um, 
continue to sort of break those habits, I suppose. Um, I think that's, that can be useful. The third one might, might be a bit vague, but. <laughs> no, no, the, 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 ask, the, the ask questions, ask yourself questions continually. Yeah. And, and as for, I wonder if it's, you know, fail, fail, with, fail with grace, so fail and learn at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I like so, that. Oh, fail with grace. Yes, mm. I'm going to nick that, Ian. Oh, it could be a book, couldn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> fail with grace. Yeah. You heard yeah. it here first. Yeah. Um, so I, I gave you the advantage, Caitlin, of going, going first with your three. Um, Zena, are you doing some frantic re-scribbling there? Or have you got some complimentary ideas? So, okay. So what strikes me is, um, one is um, the the power of tone and knowing how much knowing how much power there is in um, in setting tone um, you know if if people are going to be able to fail with grace which will shortly become a hashtag I'm sure um, then that that can only be in an environment that celebrates it um, so spending some time thinking about what tone you as a as a leader or as a member of a team what tone you set um, is incredibly valuable um, i think um, knowing that there is a parallel between vulnerability and creativity um, and that you know, we've all learned in the pandemic about vulnerability in a really different way. And, and it, this, this whole, the next five years are going to be fascinating, apart from anything else, they're going to be absolutely fascinating for seeing how people are allowing the human more into, you know, in, into the business world, the corporate world. And um, and hooray for that. What a massive hooray for that. Because with the human comes the creativity, comes the, you know, the space for empathy and understanding and all of these things that we know for a fact makes us work better, you know. So please, please, can we, can we prioritise that? Um, and my third question, my third point, Ian, is... <laughs> um, I think you made a really amazing point about space and thinking. Well then, thank you. Yeah, I'll just, um, I'll go back on that action. one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Always collab always look to your, <laughs> to your collaborator. Yes, for the next, yes, and exactly. Um, yeah, I think, um, yes, I think, knowing that um, ideas need space to develop and that space isn't a passive word it's a you know it's an active place and you can't just sit around you know like you need to think about it you need to maybe take yourself for a walk or maybe um, you know consciously turn your computer off for 30 minutes it but you know in order to think about it it's not about necessarily wasting time but it's about using your time to value how you think um, 
and and ideas do come they will come um so yeah that would those would be my thank you and if i could if i could add a final one which is um beware if mrs boggins comes a knocking at your door <laughs> where is boggins yeah. was it a gun or was it a banana after all <laughs> well we'll leave everybody on that cliffhanger um uh, but look, thank you so much for coming along, um, creating the summer, the, the summer special. Um, it's been wonderful talking with you. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm now intrigued to find out what plans you've, you've got next. But we'll have that discussion off air. But thank you very much for coming along. Oh, well, it was an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Ian. Thank you so much for having me.